I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 28, 2022. Coming up, if bird songs help a bird fall in love, does it get even better with a dose of dopamine? So we put dopamine into the auditory system while females just sat passively and listened to the song that they didn't like. And what if nature wants us to be fat? Some animals want to gain fat, and that's to protect them during periods of food shortage. Most animals will actually try to maintain a small amount of fat. We begin with a look at the love songs of birds. This time of year, birds sing quite often with beautiful melodies and variations. Males sing some of these songs to strengthen their bond with their mate. Some scientists have wondered, might those songs affect feel-good hormones in the brain? Hormones such as dopamine. And could the scientist use dopamine injections in a female bird to influence just what song she likes the best? And which male she likes the best? To study this question, scientists wanted a bird that's easy to breed in captivity, even if, to human ears, its song might not be the most melodic. So they chose the zebra finch. For more, here's How on Earth's Benita Lee. What you're hearing is a male zebra finch singing. You may think that it sounds like a squeaky toy squeezing out Morse code, but to a female finch, it's a love ballad. Like many bird species, the zebra finch male is more flashy looking than the female. Both are gray with zebra-like stripes on their tails and orange beaks as bright as construction cones. But male zebra finches with their orangey accent feathers and little white spots pop with color and they sing. Scientists like Dr. Sarah Woolley of McGill University say they study zebra finches in the lab because these songbirds learn to sing in ways that are similar to how people learn to speak. Here's Dr. Woolley. Each male learns from his father, and so there's this sort of cultural transmission of song that happens, but different males, you can recognize them based on on the content of that song. They'll have different syllables. You can also recognize them by their voice. So sometimes males will sing, um, brothers will sing the same sequence of syllables, but they'll be a little bit higher or lower in pitch. They have their own uh, take to it. Zebra finches often mate for life. A big part of the way female zebra finches choose male mates is based on the male's song. What Dr. Woolley wants to know is how does a bird choose her Mr. Right? So we're interested in understanding how it is that birds make decisions about who to mate with and what songs they like and, um, and to use that to better understand how we might recognize individuals or have preferences ourselves in terms of the kinds of sounds we like to hear or music we like to listen to. In a paper published in the journal Current Biology, Woolley reported surprising findings about how dopamine can affect a female finch's response to courting songs. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that delivers signals from one neuron to another. 
When dopamine is released in our brains, we feel pleasure and reward. Woolley says that in the past, scientists believed that dopamine only acted in reward pathways in the brain, like the basal ganglia or the nucleus accumbens. And dopamine acts in those areas to make us move towards things that we like. When it came to the sensory parts of the brain, like the auditory cortex, scientists were less clear about dopamine's role. And we think about auditory areas, so sensory areas, as just telling us what things are in the world. So helping us to identify sounds or recognize an individual. But we don't usually think of the sensory area as being important for determining whether we like something. It's sort of just helping us to know that the sound is there and what the sound is. Woolley says some data suggests that maybe the auditory system is doing more than just perceiving sound. Studies in rats found that dopamine in the auditory cortex created plasticity. That is, dopamine opened up the flexibility of the brain. It could reorganize the rat's response to stimuli. Different sound frequencies are represented in the auditory cortex of mammals like a line of stripes, kind of like a piano keyboard. So on one end of the auditory cortex, one stripe might help a rat recognize a 4 kilohertz tone. Further down the row of stripes, another line might help the rat recognize an 8 kilohertz tone. When researchers placed dopamine in the auditory cortex of a rat and played a tone that was a certain frequency, they found that that expanded the representation of that frequency in the map. So if they, for example, had dopamine in an 8 kilohertz tone, they found that the area that represents 8 kilohertz was bigger following that combination. So it implies that dopamine could allow the brain to sort of reorganize a little bit if you put it together with a sound. This data sparked a new question about the auditory cortex. So we knew that there was dopamine present in that part of the brain. Um, so it seemed like it must be doing something. And so we wondered if that kind of reorganization could happen if we didn't just do a tone, but if we did something that was salient and important to the bird, like a song. And so then we asked, well, can we get those females to switch their preference? And that's where dopamine comes in. No one had ever gathered evidence about whether or not injecting dopamine into the brains of female zebra finches would affect their song preferences. If dopamine altered rats' brains so that they paid more attention to a certain tone, what might it do to female finches when they heard a male finch's mating song? But Woolley and her team faced several challenges before they could even test how dopamine might affect a bird's perception of song. One of the biggest challenges, Woolley says, was to teach female birds how to express their interest. Female zebra finches don't sing, but they do chirp in reaction to songs they appreciate. For the purposes of an experiment about song preferences, that's not enough information to go on. For this study, Woolley used burlap strings that, when yanked, played a male finch's love song. The birds figured this out pretty quickly, she says. And each time the bird would pull on a string, it would play back a particular song. And so we could use that to determine um, which songs birds liked. So over time, the birds realized that the sounds are different, and they realized that they like one more than the other. 
Wooly and her team used the number of times a bird pulled on a string as an indication of what song she liked and how much she liked it. We used different pairs of males pitted against each other, and different females had different preferences. So if they're sort of meh about them, they might pull equally on each side, or they might just not pull at all. I really like the string pull because it, it's more active for them, and so you get this nice mix of motivation and preference to it. In case you're a bird song aficionado, here's an example of a preferred male song. He's a hard act to follow. While it's said that a little competition never hurts, it does if you're this guy. To a human ear, it can all sound pretty much the same. Imagine a jazz musician playing from his soul, hitting every note with conviction and sincerity. So here it is again, Mr. Right. And Mr. Wrong. He's the bird with the less preferred song because it's a lot less complex than Mr. Wright's. Wooden, robotic, learned by rote, it's an eye-glazing monotone. But it's not for lack of trying. If you have males that sing to a female or they sing by themselves, they change the way they sing it. So singing to a female, it's a little bit longer and faster and cleaner um, than when they sing alone. And females can pick up on that difference in performance, too. Dr. Woolley's team found that the female finches were very consistent about who they liked. So some females liked George and some females liked Fred. Um, but female, each individual female was consistent. So if she liked George, she always liked George, no matter how many times we tested her. Once the team understood who liked whom, then came the real test. So we put dopamine into the auditory system while females just sat passively and listened to the song that they didn't like. And what we found was that when we tested them again the following day, um, they switched their preference. So most of them would decide, oh, that song I didn't like on Monday, I actually really like that song. And that new preference lasted for at least a week. And it actually, a week later, it was stronger than it had been initially. Hearing the results of this study might spark a very non-scientific question. Does this mean there's no such thing as true love? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that you can imagine that you, if I played you sort of two random songs and you're like, I like this one better. And you might be consistent in liking that one better, but it doesn't mean that like that is the song that you will love for all time, but you have a bias towards it. And so I think it's the same sort of thing here, where if you play them two songs, depending on, you know, how they grew up and what their dad sounded like and what other birds they've interacted with, they might say, oh, I really like George's song more than Fred's. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to love George's song from then on out. And preference is not about repetition. Wooly explains that a female bird listening to four hours of a male bird's song doesn't make her like it more. But still, to clinch the deal, there's a little more chemistry that needs to occur. They actually need to physically interact with a bird to really form a pair bond and, and have a really strong mating preference. What the research might point to is that preferences can be built upon various influences beyond what's considered popular. Right. I think I often think of it in terms of my own music preferences. So um, in general, you know, I can recognize 
uh, high quality music in some way, something that's objectively good, right? Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello. That kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, the music that I like doesn't steer in that direction. It tends to be you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and so I like a lot of pop punk kind of music. Which may not be good, but it's what I like. And so we think what's happening with our birds is very similar. And their individual preferences may draw from their own experiences. So what they heard when they were young, what birds they've interacted with since, how their brain is organized. And we're interested in understanding the neural circuits that are behind that. So how is it that the brain allows experience to shape what they like? Woolley says ongoing studies are looking into just how long a decision influenced by dopamine lasts. In the meantime, offering a dopamine-inducing box of chocolates on a first date might not be a bad idea. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. Thanks to Benita Lee for that report. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Benita Lee. From the brains of birds and love songs, let's go now to the world of food and health. CU Medical School professor Richard Johnson has a new book about how modern food choices can trigger an ancient signaling pathway in the body that can lead to excess weight gain and other health challenges. It's a signaling pathway that has helped animals like bears survive hibernation and camels survive long periods without water. But in humans, triggering this pathway can mess up health. For more, here's Shelley talking with CU School of Medicine professor Richard Johnson about his latest book titled, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. My name is Richard Johnson. I'm a professor of medicine here at the University of Colorado. In fact, you direct the Department of Hypertension, or have you changed your position now? I was the chief here from 2008 till 2017, but currently I'm uh, simply a professor. <laughs> that gives you more time to research and less that you have to be directing. Absolutely correct. Are you doing a lot of research? I am. I continue to be a researchaholic. I've been doing research since the early 80s. It makes up a great part of my life. It's exciting, exhilarating, and hard work. It is all those things, with a lot of mysteries, a lot of dead ends, a lot of sudden doors that open up. Yes, actually it's been a series of great surprises and discoveries. This whole story that I've written about is like finding treasure. And what happened was we found a piece of gold and we thought that was the best thing in the world and then we found another one and then we found another and then we found a whole treasure chest. It's sort of like finding King Priam's treasure. What we've realized is that this pathway that we've identified seems to be involved not just in obesity and diabetes but in many many current diseases including uh, having a role in cancer and having a role in dementia and other medical problems. 
Backing up just a little bit, you're in the division of hypertension and nephrology, which means that you deal with things like high blood pressure and kidney disease and gout. Yes, that's right. I started primarily in the world of kidney disease and high blood pressure. But as my research progressed, I migrated into other fields and ended up studying metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes. Metabolic syndrome is that very strange thing where somebody's metabolism gets out of balance. They get really hungry for things that they don't really need. They lose energy. They can't build muscle as much. They're more prone to heart disease. Yeah, metabolic syndrome refers to a constellation of findings. Usually it includes abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, elevated blood sugar, sort of like insulin resistance. So it's not true diabetes, but it's sort of pre-diabetes. means that a person's cells in their body can't take in energy and the insulin levels are very high. You become resistant to the effects of insulin. So the insulin levels go up to help control your blood sugar. But even with that, your blood sugars tend to be a little bit on the high side. And then you have elevated triglycerides in your blood, which is fat. And oftentimes you'll have fatty liver. And this constellation of signs got the name metabolic syndrome many years ago. We now know that about a quarter of all adults have metabolic syndrome in the U.S. In some places in the world, it's higher. So it seems to be a real common issue. In the U.S., in some parts of the world, it's lower, though. Absolutely. So it can be lower. It's sort of like diabetes. In our country, diabetes is present in about 10 to 12 percent of the population. You go to Samoa, it's like 40 percent. You go to Kuwait, it's like 25%. You study the Pima Indians where it's 50%. Diabetes and metabolic syndrome, which kind of run together, they vary quite a bit. But we have very high rates here compared to some places like Sweden. It's still low compared to other countries like Kuwait, Samoa. It isn't good, but it could be worse. It could be worse. Well, Rick Johnson, you've written some other books as you've done research into this. One you called The Fat Switch one you called The Sugar Fix. Yes. And now you have a new book that's called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. That's right. Do you want to tell us what this book's about? Yeah, so this book is the culmination of the work I've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. It's told like a detective story because that's sort of the way it was when we tried to figure this out. And it takes us through an adventure story where we try to figure out what causes obesity, we begin by including studies of animals in nature that naturally become obese. We try to figure out why they become obese, and then we relate it to humans. And from that, there were many discoveries. Some of them are very surprising about what causes obesity. And from that comes a whole series of ways to treat obesity, many of which have not been tried before. And we have some data that some of these methods will work. So it's been a great journey, and we've also been able to link this pathway of metabolic syndrome, not just with, you know, classic things like diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, and heart disease, but also with things like behavioral disorders, with dementia, with alcoholism, and with cancer. 
so many paths lead to similar roads sometimes. Yeah, it's sort of like we identified a major, major mechanism that animals use to become fat. This mechanism is involved in a lot of diseases. So I think it will turn out to be uh, very, very important in terms of how we approach a lot of our current diseases. Let's start with the punchline. What do you think animals do to get fat? So it turns out that they can do a variety of things, but our first big breakthrough was the discovery of the importance of fructose. Fructose is known as fruit sugar. In the wild, it's in fruit and honey. Perhaps many of you are going, hey, what's this all about? Because aren't fruits supposed to be healthy? I thought honey was healthy. It will sound sort of funny to hear that fructose might actually be at the core of what's driving metabolic syndrome and related diseases. But it turns out that it really is fructose. And we've been able to show how. And we've also been able to show why natural fruit intake for us is actually healthy. And yet when animals eat a lot of fruit, they become fat. Whew, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. Let's start for just a second about the concept of animals want to be fat. Given how much Americans try not to be fat, why do animals want to be fat? The title's not completely true. Only some animals want to gain fat, and that's to protect them during periods of food shortage. Most animals will actually try to maintain a small amount of fat and they'll regulate it very well. So they'll have some fat, but they don't want to get truly obese. And so what most animals do, if they eat too much one day, they'll eat less the next. If they exercise and run around too much one day and burn too many calories, the next day they'll slow down and balance out so that they don't lose weight or gain weight. Other than what they're expected to do, you know, if they're like growing, actively growing. And you can show that by taking an animal and force-feeding it so that it gains weight. Or you can uh, fast an animal so it loses weight uh, against its will. And then if you stop that, they go right back to the weight they should be at that time of the year. It's not even goes back to the weight they were. They'll go back to the weight where they feel they should be for that time of the year. But there are animals that want to gain weight and they do it at specific times. The classic is the animal preparing for hibernation. Oh yes, those bears that get so big before they go to sleep. A bear will maintain its weight during the summer, but in the fall, suddenly it will become hungry. And it will not just become hungry, it'll become really hungry. And it can, it can gain as much as eight or 10 pounds a day they can be eating 20,000 calories a day, and they will increase their weight as much as 50%. It's huge. And the way they tend to do it is by eating a lot of fruit. Now, remember, we think of fruit as healthy, but we are eating, you know, how many berries or grapes do you eat, Shelly? I don't eat very many grapes, actually. Okay. Let's say you eat a bowl of grapes, you know. These guys will eat 10,000 grapes in 24 hours. So we're talking a different level of fruit. Orangutans, when they want to gain weight, they'll eat fruit and they'll 
gorge, and I mean they'll get into a tree and they'll eat fruit after fruit after fruit and eat it fast and just consume and get a lot of sugar. So normally a, a fruit will have like five grams of fructose, maybe 10 at max. When we are eating fruit, we tend to eat you know one or two fruit at a time. But a bear or a orangutan or an animal that wants to eat fruit to gain weight, they'll eat a lot more relative to their weight. That's how it works. So the animals that eat a lot of this fructose trigger a biologic switch. And this was what we've been trying to uncover, a actual biologic mechanism that triggers weight gain, obesity, insulin resistance, a rise in blood pressure, all the features of metabolic syndrome. We're talking with Rick Johnson, a professor at the CU School of Medicine, whose new book is Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. Johnson's book goes into a great deal of detail about all of the ways that animals in the wild use what he calls the survival switch to put on weight at the time where it's needed. And he talks in his book about all the ways that people can choose foods and activities that reduce the chance that that switch will get stuck, leaving people with diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, kidney disease, a lot of things. Well, there's a lot more that Rick has to say. So if you would like to hear the full extended interview, you can check it out on our website. Again, this has been Rick Johnson talking about his new book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Shelley Schlender and Benita Lee. Additional contributions by Alexis Kenyon. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Marvin Gaye, Yo-Yo Ma, and The Vandals. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to the topics we've talked about today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>